Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. about to reprise and replay my interview with Joshua Wolfshank, which was done sometime in mid-2020. This interview is actually the result of two discussions with Joshua. So before we jump into the episode, I'm going to just flag points up front here. I mean, I could talk about the whole interview forever, probably for three times longer than the actual interview, but I'm just going to highlight three or four ideas that occurred to me when listening. Uh, First, Shank mentions two really interesting elements of creative partnerships up front when discussing why it's tough to examine Lennon-McCartney. He said that creative pairs tend to do something he calls closing the door, which is basically removing themselves and their partnership from outside scrutiny, basically just doing their work behind closed doors, which is part of their bond, you know, that nobody else really knows what's going on, but it makes it tough to understand who did what. And he makes the point that there was very little testimony from either Lennon or McCartney about their partnership until things got troubled. I mean, I would counter this a little bit in that they were pretty consistent the whole time that uh, they wrote in every configuration that sometimes Lennon wrote the music, sometimes McCartney wrote the music, sometimes Uh, One came in with a song and the other would help them finish it or they'd write it together. So they gave us all this information, but that's basically all we know. We don't really know that much about it. But they were pretty generous about their partnership and very, very positive about it until uh, their partnership got troubled. And and they really didn't even say anything about their partnership until late 69. And as Shank said... McCartney, even then, was pretty diplomatic. It was Lennon who swung from one extreme to the other and left a really problematic record as a result, which is something that I flagged in my podcast introduction and overview, The Lasting Effect of Lennon Remembers. And I think one of the reasons that it was so impactful, other than the fact that John was highly emotional and is a great storyteller, is that it was the first time we really got a glimpse into what really happened between them. And John was just unloading. So that's the first problem that Shank flags was that the majority of their work was done behind metaphorical closed doors. And then Lennon exposed what they did, but exposed it when he was feeling hurt and betrayed and heartbroken. And that left a problematic record. The second point that Shank makes was that their whole creative presence in the world was wrapped up in each other. 
And so when their partnership got into trouble, they both went through a crisis because they had very little creative egos on their own or very little individual creative egos. And so it was kind of like, well, who am I without this person? Everything we put into the world has been together. And so that created a crisis. And I think that's a really interesting idea to think about because even though anybody who listens to the podcast knows that I believe that they remained in an infinite game forever, they were always in a dance. They probably did need some time to figure out who they were without the other before coming back together, which as Shank mentions in this episode is is intriguing and unfortunate that it didn't happen because it was probably in the cards. Anyway, so Shank makes a second point about the fact that these great creative pairs often have these problems in that they sink so much of their creative capital into each other and their partnership so that when they're on their own again, they, they're left in these crises. And what I wanted to point out was, I think one of the reasons for Lennon Remembers was for a combination of these two reasons, because nobody knew what they had done And because Lennon was going through this crisis and he felt especially insecure that his input and genius wouldn't be recognized. And I know it seems hard to imagine this now. And even in 69, he was like man of the decade by some magazine. Um, So he was getting lots of accolades, but it, it would be hard to overstate how much credit McCartney got in the 60s. I mean, Paul's reputation was pretty sterling in the 60s, especially as being known as the melodic genius for songs like Yesterday and Hey Jude and Michelle. And, you know, these are all songs that won the awards in the 60s. And so I think that Lennon was pretty insecure about this. And he was well aware of the way they were perceived. He made comments in the early 70s of not wanting to be seen as the one who got lucky, who won the pools, that kind of thing, you know, which obviously Paul knew as well because he referenced it in his song, Too Many People, you know, with the line, you're lucky break. So because John was the more insecure, uh, he went on the offensive, claiming that he was the genius. And he'd been working with Jana for many months as well, working on creating a more solid ego. And of course, in Yoko, he's got the greatest champion in the world, and she understands how to create meaningful stories and brands in the world. And so they went on the offensive and created a campaign to make sure that Lenin got credit, which, to be fair, was probably smart. But I think he also went a little overboard at a time when he was feeling badly and then later walked it back, but he couldn't because the interview that he gave was so compelling that that's what everybody is attracted to. And there's been this misguided belief that because he was emotional, that that was the truth. Whereas uh, in a later episode, when I talked to historian Erin Torkelson Weber, she makes the point that emotional interviews tend to be less trustworthy. And, um, I have this insight about John um, worrying about how he was going to be seen because he mentions it on uh, multiple occasions. But there's also this anecdote from Ray Connolly that he's mentioned in some interviews, but it's also in his book, The Ray Connolly Archive. He makes a point about Lennon remembers being over the top. And he said that it was unfortunate that John's tendency to exaggerate and go on rant went unchallenged. 
and where it wasn't always realized when he was being comedically straight faced and tongue in cheek. And he says that the John Lennon I recorded was a very funny man who liked to paint himself ironically as the indignant butt of his own stories. He said, John said, did you see the Time magazine is saying that George is the philosopher? He asked me one day, and there's an article in the Times that I've actually thought about sending anonymously, of course, to Sue's Corner in the satirical magazine Private Eye, saying how Paul is the great musician, one a philosopher, another a great musician. Where does that lead me? Connolly says, the nutter? And John says, yes, I'm the nutter. Fuck them all. So, you know, although he's being funny and making fun of himself here, he has noticed and it has bothered him since he's brought it up with Ray, the fact that that George and Paul each have their niche and, you know, that George is the philosopher that bothered him. But then it really bothered John that Paul is this great musician. And I know it really bothered him because it's the one that he wanted to write to the paper about. So he says, where does that lead me? And so uh, I think Lennon remembers was in part because John was going to make sure that he got credit and that he carved out his own space, which was as a genius, which he is. It's just unfortunate that he wasn't able to be uh, generous to his partner at this time as well. Later, when he was feeling better, he gave many other interviews where he was generous about McCartney. But that seems to have been lost. And this first interview uh, is the one that people run with. And it's where so many people get their impression of John. And so that's a big problem. But it's also a problem for McCartney. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, so many authors have taken their cues from this one interview. And they haven't done their homework and looked more deeply at everything else he said. In the excerpt that I played, Paul said that People who haven't done their homework see John as this tough guy. But in reality, he was soft and a baby and all these other terms that he uses. And McCartney's been saying, this was not the John I knew. This is not the way John was. He had a front. He wasn't Mr. Tough Guy, except for when he was defensive and then he'd have this really big front. But that's not the real guy. You know, you weren't there. I was there. You weren't. This is the real story that we were equals. And people have been just ignoring him. And the problem is, again, this issue that they did most of their work behind closed doors. So nobody can know except those two. When editing this episode, I included the song Early Days. And uh, yet again, it really connected with me on a deeper level. Even though I've always uh, felt that this song was deeply emotional, I really felt how profoundly sad this song was in listening to it. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, now everybody seems to have their own opinion on who did this and who did that. But as for me, I don't see how they can remember when they weren't where it was at. And then he says, and they can't take it from me if they try because I lived through those early days. So many times I had to change the pain to laughter just to keep from getting crazed. I lived through those early days. I mean, it's like a defiant statement, but also, I mean, there's great pain in this. He had to change the pain to laughter just to keep from going crazed because people are rewriting the story that he was part of, he was half of. And they're acting like they know better than him. You know, things are being said about authors like they know the Beatles better than they know themselves. 
which they don't. If McCartney doesn't agree, they're getting something wrong. In fact, this is what Paul said in many years from now. He said, it was only me that sat in those hotel rooms, in his house, in the attic. It wasn't Yoko. It wasn't Sean. It wasn't Julian. It wasn't George. It wasn't Mimi. It wasn't Ringo. It wasn't Miles. It was me that sat in those rooms, seeing him in all his moods, and all his little things, seeing him not being able to write a song and having me help, seeing me not be able to write a song and him help me. The truth of the matter is, John and I were kind of equal. It really did pan itself out about equal. That's one of the amazing things about it. People can say, oh, well, it wasn't Paul, it was John, or it wasn't John, it was Paul. But I was there, and I know that's not true. The other Beatles know that's not true. So much of it was team effort, joint effort. There really was so much of it. For the longest time, Paul has promoted the equality of their partnership, but in the past 15 years or so, it seems like he's just given in. In fact, he told Jan Wenner, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but he told Wenner that he wanted to be part of the Lennon fan club rather than fight against it because that was an impossible situation for him. He is a fan of John Lennon and he was trying to defend himself at the same time. And that always pitted him against Lennon. So finally, I think he's just given up and said, I'm just going to be fully positive about John and the Beatles. And that's lovely and it's beautiful, but it's also creating another problematic record where people now think that Paul Hero worshiped John which wasn't the case either. Which is not to say that we can't figure their partnership out to some extent and provide very good takes and get much closer. I really truly believe that we can, and that's what I'm trying to do. But it means that we have to wade through all of their interviews and take all of the context into account and stop buying into Lennon Remembers as much as we have, or else to see it through a lens of this is somebody who's feeling defensive and fronting. But it also means taking what Paul has said about their partnership to heart. He has consistently said the same thing for 50 years, that yes, that they were competitive, but in a good way. And it was a very close, very warm and rewarding partnership, and they were equals. And when you dig more deeply into Lennon's interviews for the rest of the decade, this is what he basically says as well. And so I take that as the starting point that they felt like equals, that they loved each other, and that it was a very warm, productive thing between the two of them. Not that they didn't have their ups and downs, they did, but this was the baseline. It was the source of great positive energy between them. And a lot of their public pronouncements were really them just acting out in public to each other. They were really speaking to each other through the media when they couldn't speak to each other, which actually brings me to my next point. And your inspiration, love, may it last, may it come to you, time and time again. Another idea that jumped out at me when listening to this interview was a quote that I shared, which was, I had one important reader and it was you. I shared this quote in my discussion with Shank because I loved it so much. I mean, we didn't really even discuss it that deeply, 
But I brought it up because I think it's so relevant to understanding Lennon and McCartney, and actually the Beatles as a whole, uh, but especially Lennon and McCartney, is the idea that they were the other's most important audience. And it's something that Shank found in talking to creative pairs was that they were each other's most important audience. And this is one of the great strengths of partnerships is having someone you trust and admire more than anyone loving the work as much as you do. I think it gives them tremendous confidence in their work. And in fact, if the other person loves the work and you love the work, then that's enough to some extent. I mean, Paul McCartney was asked in 1964 how they judge whether a song was good after they'd written it. And Paul's answer was that it was really them liking it. He said that, well, it's just us liking it. And then he specified that it's him and John thinking it was good. And then he added that he said, well, it's us liking it, but also if other people like it and it's commercially successful. But his first go-to was that they liked it, specifically that he and John liked it. And I just want to elaborate on this, that McCartney doesn't say it's John liking it. He says it's us liking it, John and I liking it together, which I think is an important nuance that when they were incredibly close, they may not have considered each other their audience, but rather their co-creator. That's how enmeshed their thinking was, that, that an idea wouldn't even proceed without both of them liking it and embracing it. So they were co-creators that gave small nods of approval that moved works forward. And then later, when there was more separation between them, that they became more of an audience for each other. And then I think what happened during the breakup or interruption, as Shane calls it, is that there was a shift in this dynamic in that they no longer knew what the other was thinking. And again, I don't think that they were able to get out of each other's minds. I think that they were still each other's most important audience but they didn't have the immediate feedback anymore. So they had to sort of read between the lines and statements that were made publicly. And I think that this would have been incredibly difficult for them because while they had each other's support, they probably felt very strong in the world. And, you know, once they separated, they had Linda and Yoko's support, and I'm sure that was incredibly meaningful. But I still think that Lennon and McCartney were speaking to each other, wanted each other's love and approval and not so much approval, you know, that word is used. I think that they were looking for the other to love their work because their work was so closely associated with them themselves. And so this period would have been very, very difficult. And I think that Lennon actually used this in a way to punish McCartney for whatever it was that McCartney did that wounded Lennon that made him start to own his own work in 68. I don't think Lennon started to separate from Lennon and McCartney because he was feeling more independent. I specifically think he did that as a result of some wound. But one of the ways that Lennon wounded McCartney back, and this is really important to the story, in my reading of the story, is that what Lennon did was he withdrew his enthusiasm and praise and support for McCartney's songs at the end of the Beatles. And unfortunately, the public didn't necessarily read through 
Lenin's behavior and took him seriously. And then culture reflected this back to McCartney, that Lenin didn't like McCartney's work. And that has been the thought ever since. And I personally do not think this is the case at all. I think that Lenin just understood very deeply that he was McCartney's important audience. And so he did this specifically to wound McCartney. I mean, come on, let's get real for a second here. Is there any way that Lennon didn't listen to the long medley and love McCartney's work from that? I mean, it's brilliant work. To think that Lennon didn't love elements of McCartney or Ram is insane. I mean, Lennon was playing Ram uh, in groups of people within months, even though outwardly he said he didn't like it. Um, there's just brilliant music there and McCartney's trying stuff. And I would assume if Lennon was closer to McCartney at that time and they weren't in a war, um, that he would have been praising McCartney for trying and, and moving away from the perfectionism of Abbey Road to something that was just different. So Lennon, I think, used this as a weapon. McCartney less so because McCartney was less emotionally reactive in this whole period. Uh, I think Lennon was more deeply wounded than McCartney was initially. But McCartney was also incredibly hurt by Lennon, especially in the long run. And even though McCartney wasn't as publicly negative about Lennon's work ever, I just don't think he had it in him to say that he didn't love Lennon's music when he did. But where McCartney did go after Lennon was for his behavior. We can hear that in something like Too Many People, which was a statement from Paul that he wasn't that impressed with John's activities, you know, too many people preaching practices. Um, he's saying that he's not that impressed with what John's doing in the world. And, you know, John went ballistic because I think that's why people listening to the album like, well, it's not that big a deal, John. But the fact that McCartney is Lennon's biggest audience means that when McCartney is going, mm, I see through you. I'm not that impressed with your global activities as peace guru that Lennon freaks out. McCartney was so much more measured in terms of what he put out publicly. I mean, he knew how to get to Lennon, but I think the public didn't need to have a record of his feelings at that time. On the other hand, I think that Lennon did things publicly because he thought that was his way of hurting McCartney. I suspect that Lennon thought that his biggest weapon against McCartney was doing something publicly that doing something private just wouldn't have hurt McCartney that much. So he had to go public. So each man is reacting in ways that they knew would hurt each other. Unfortunately, Lennon's way had lasting implications in the world in a very, very important way. And of course, McCartney also criticized John's actions in things like uh, the Life magazine, where he just says that he thinks John blows it with interviews like Lennon remembers. He knew how to subtly say, I don't care. I see through your bullshit, John. It didn't impress me. 
But again, John so forcefully made the point that he didn't like McCartney's music was, I think, his way of responding and really hurting Paul. And he got to him. And I think one of the saddest, saddest comments I've ever heard from McCartney, to me, this was the most heartbreaking, was when McCartney mentioned that he said to Yoko Ono, did John really hate all of my music? Ugh, that kills me because that was Paul's fear. I think he probably knew this wasn't true, but that was his fear. And of course, Yoko apparently said back to him, no, that they had listened to his music and that John had cried when listening to it. But uh, that, that's how they wounded each other. And of course, when they're in a good place, interpersonally, they praise each other. John praised uh, Band on the Run and Paul praised Walls and Bridges, saying that it was great and that he thought that John could even do better. Um, one of the comments that stuck with me, there was um, an interview where John Lennon made some comments in the early 70s. I think it was after Sometime in New York City came out. It might have been after Mind Games. But basically, the critics were tough on John. And and John's comment was, and I'm paraphrasing, I haven't been able to find it, but th this absolutely was a comment by Lennon. He said that he wished that he could talk to McCartney about the album because he thought McCartney would understand what he was trying to do. That stuck with me because it gave me insight into how Lennon thought of McCartney as a collaborator, as always encouraging. And that was quite sweet. And that, that in some ways he just needed McCartney to understand that that was in a way um, what he needed to offset what the critics had said. So this idea that they were each other's most important audience is incredibly important. And I think it extends to all of the Beatles. They all cared what each other was saying. And sometimes when they were negative about each other, I don't always think it represents their full impression. I think sometimes when they were angry with each other, that's how they wounded each other. Okay. And then finally, another point I wanted to bring up is the idea of telepathy. In Shank's book, he mentions that creative pairs often almost feel like they've got this telepathic connection, which is something that I have flagged repeatedly for Lennon and McCartney and for the Beatles as a whole. And Shank makes the point that it isn't actually telepathy, but it can seem this way because they are so close. And I mean, uh, I think that the Beatles are a little magic, so maybe they do have it or else they are just so close that, you know, that it seems this way. And I think if we don't want to call it that, that there is certainly a level of extreme attunement to each other that is really important to keep in mind. And I think this gets to some of the core issues of 68 and 69, especially between Lennon and McCartney, is that Lennon expects McCartney to be so attuned to him that he should know what Lennon is thinking. And I think in some ways, Lennon believes this because he is so attuned to McCartney. So I think this is what actually creates the spiraling, is this expectation of telepathy, of understanding what the other wants. And this is all to say that the notion of telepathy is, uh, this is common among creative pairs, you know, so I, I think it's not crazy to, to suggest that this is 
kind of at the core of some of their issues. And again, it's not just Lennon McCartney. I think it's most intense between them. But I think this level of almost telepathy exists between all of the Beatles, especially when they are working. I think Lennon and McCartney interpersonally, it's there between all the Beatles. It's there when they're working. And actually, um, Ringo mentioned this telepathy in an interview. The context of this quote is he's talking about his style of drumming, but he said, and I quote here, Whatever beat I would put down, I could never repeat identically because I play with my soul more than my head. My head knows to play the rhythms, rock and roll, swing, whatever, but it comes out as whatever the feeling is at that moment. The interesting thing about the Beatles was that we seem to have telepathy without thinking we'd all be up or bringing it down together. It was magic. And that was one of the forces of the Beatles. Now, before I do exactly what I said I didn't want to do at the beginning, I will now go on to the discussion, and I would be very interested in your thoughts. So thanks for listening. Take care. Hope you enjoyed this interview. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Diana. So who are we talking with today? I am talking to Joshua Wolfshank, who is the author of The Powers of Two. And why did you want to talk with Joshua? Well, I really like the concept of his book. You know, he dug into the magic and chemistry of creative partnerships. He challenges the lone genius concept. Instead, he proposes that people who accomplish great things in society often have a partner or a collaborator in some form or another. And obviously, this is highly relevant to the Beatles story, um, given the primacy and importance of the Lennon-McCartney partnership, right? Mm -hmm. He has interviewed apparently over 100 creative partnerships and found that there were a lot of similarities about successful partnerships. And there seemed to be a lot of tenets or ingredients necessary. So we can sort of see, you know, how Lennon and McCartney fit into these. But also, he uses Lennon and McCartney as a lead partnership because he said that they exemplified great creative partnerships in so many ways, in both the good and the bad. I love this. I can't wait to dig in. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to understand Lennon-McCartney because this area has been so under-investigated. You know, like they have a relationship that not that many of us understand. Mm -hmm. And he gives us an insight into what happens when you're inside of these so that we sort of have a greater understanding of the upsides and downsides of partnerships. You know, most of us don't understand what it's like to create with a person. And so he gives us a peek into what goes on in these these kinds of relationships and the emotions that they have. So do you like his take on Lennon and McCartney? Well, here's the thing about his point of view is that he understands Lennon more as a creative person. He's dug into Lennon's work more deeply than McCartney. So I like his um, understanding of how creative partnerships work. What I didn't always agree with is his take on Lennon and McCartney, because I think he tended to fall into some of the surface level readings of Lennon McCartney because he really gets Lennon and his reading of McCartney uh, sort of leans on some of the tropes. And I think McCartney is a much more complicated person. I think his role with Lennon is much more complicated. So I push back on some of his takes on them as a creative partnership. And he and I have had, had a few conversations and we've had some fun kind of debating these because he was talking to a hundred partnerships. He can't go as deeply but I do think that his view on how creative relationships work is really worth talking about. So this is why I wanted to talk to him. 
Well, I can't wait to hear about it. Let's <laughs> jump in. Joshua Wolfshank, thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Although over the years I've read a million books about the Beatles and, and really have spent a lot of time diving into their narrative, there was always a sense that their story didn't totally make sense to me. Mm. And it was only when I read your article in The Atlantic and then I read your book that I really re-engaged because it was like the first time that I thought, yeah, okay, now this is starting to make more sense to mm. me. And, you know, there's a there's a quote by Cynthia Lennon, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she says that so many authors get the story factually right, but emotionally wrong. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed in Beatles books is that it's like a litany of things they did. And, you know, it's kind of like what the, the four of them were doing and, you know, different things that happened in their life. But weirdly... The relationship between Lennon and McCartney is so rarely explored. Yeah. It, it's shocking to me. And it, it's interesting because our longest running series is about the breakup. And we go deep into their uh, relationship and partnership to explore the dynamics of it. And, you know, there was um, a blogger who actually commented on it. He said, it's weird to think that this is... <laughs> Nobody has done this. I mean, it's such an integral and core element to the Beatles' success, and yet it goes unexplored. Yeah, well, there are a couple of core challenges. One is just simple, I mean, the fancy word for it is historiography, like what is the material that we use to tell a story from the past? And, you know, the best historians get down to the primary evidence, but the primary evidence here is really, really problematic because yes. the basic material... You know, the basic tracks were laid down in the late 60s and early 70s. To that, Up to that point, there wasn't a lot of insight into the relationship, and there, there was very little testimony from either side. And uh, we can return to this, but this is extremely common with, with deeply connected creative partners, that part of what they do is, I call it closing the door in the book, that they remove themselves from... Um, inspection, inquiry, and that is actually an essential part of of the of the bond. Um, and often there are kind of explicit agreements that go along with that. In the case of Lennon McCartney, it was it was the joint crediting. Um, yeah. Dave Dave Chappelle and, and Neil Brennan, who created Chappelle's Show, agreed very early on that they would not discuss or reveal who did what. And those those are very similar. And, and Lennon McCartney basically abided by that. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of exceptions. The Hunter Davies insight into their process is an essential text. But basically, you know, they were guys who, you know, they did what they did. They brought it to the band. The band brought it to the public. And they were not interrogating their relationship for outsiders until the relationship began to go, until it got really troubled. And those troubles became public necessarily because they were huge stars, because there was legal action involved. And that's the moment when they begin narrating their experience. And at that time, they each had, in my view, a kind of um, psychological crisis because 
their whole creative presence in the world, their identity, everything that they had was was wrapped up in this partnership. And they actually had very little of what, you know, you would consider like a, a kind of creative ego that was intact and had integrity. I mean, now we take for granted all the track notes and all the stuff you find online. If people had no idea who did what about the way the work had been made, except for that it was credited to, the, to these two people, this joint entity called Lennon McCartney. And so now suddenly they're kind of, and they're still extremely young. They're in their 20s, for God's sake. The metaphor I use in the book may be pedestrian, but you know, I think it, it holds up in my mind is that it's as though you, your whole life, you have a joint banking account and every bit of capital you have gets contributed to it. And then suddenly you find yourself with needs and you can't draw on that joint account anymore. What do you do? It's a, it's a crisis. And that's the kind of creative crisis they had. You know, Lennon, Paul is much, you know, McCartney is much more diplomatic and consistent. Lennon was much more kind of would go from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Created a really problematic primary record. And that, I think, is the, the beginning of the problem in telling the true story of the partnership. And then the second problem is just that it's, it's emotionally, psychologically, and narratively challenging to talk about what passes between two people. And yeah. most people don't want to do that work. And they don't want to, um, they don't want to kind of come from the place of humility. They don't want to acknowledge all that's not known. They want concrete action, bodies in space, simple heroes and enemies. And so it is kind of outrageous that the, that the story hasn't been told right, but it's also totally understandable given, you know, how impoverished we are as a culture in assessing creative exchange. Right. So many of the myths of Lennon and McCartney stem from the breakup and the breakup narrative yeah. that especially the first the breakup years. so-called. Well, yes, I, I agree. The so-called breakup, which the I totally agree with. It's really, I actually, I wouldn't join on, you know, the Beatle nerds um, that we're in a virtual conversation with now to, to, to use a different word, an interruption, a hiatus, Sep, you know, separation. You know it, it was not a divorce. It, no one, that, no one ever intended to be a divorce. The inflammatory language. You don't even need to go that deep to see that there was a kind of pleasure on both sides. That what I talk about in the book is as adversarial collaboration, which often happens between overt opponents, like sports rivals. But often that same dynamic happens inside creative partnership, and that was. Those guys were driven from that from the very first moment, the, literally the first moment they, they maybe, might not have been the first moment they set eyes on each other, but the first moment there was any kind of real interaction, it was like, hey, I can do this. And then the other one was goaded to do better. He was aroused and it was a combination of excitement and warmth and identification and also this kind of wonderful competitive drive. And they, they did that. And, you know, they, they made magic through that energy. And now you find, them, you find yourself at a time when they're not recording together, but they're continuing to do that. They're responding to each other. They're trying to one-up each other. They have a constant eye on the other. And 
it, and the writing comes to each other like they they ha have a dialogue going on in song still in the 70s the dialogue in songs and also yeah dialogue saw each other and on and on and you know the the thing i would love to know more about if we're going to get into the oh, just really get into the history is that there's this period this crucial period where uh, lennon and ono are separated and the intimacy between Lennon and McCartney is heightening. And there's a moment when they have a plan to get in the studio. And that all seems really, from my read of the sources, like super solid. Like, yeah, it was happening. Yep. And then it didn't happen. And what was going on then? And at some point, a great deal more material will arise. And I think that is a really, really key moment to understand. And then, of course, people who are deep into this know, well, you know, what was going on? around you know just before Lennon was shot that he was that he had he was emerging from a kind of isolation to engage creatively in a variety of ways including with the band he wanted to get back in the studio with the band Okay, so can we just take a step back and go back to the importance of creative pairs and then and then jump back into our conversation about Lennon McCartney? Well, in, in general, relationships as a force for creativity is dr drastically underappreciated. The Lone Genius is a, is a really convenient story for journalists, for historians, for critics. And it's very popular with audiences who very often want to have an attachment to a single individual and, and not feel like they're looking on to a relationship that they could never actually uh, be inside of. I, I appreciate that you feel that the book is insightful. It probably does come from looking closely at Lennon and McCartney, but alongside you know hundreds of other uh, really meaningful creative pairings, yeah. you know, throughout history from across all fields and looking for, you know, what are the, com what are the themes show up over and over again? Uh, some, some of the partnerships that I investigate are extremely well-known. Many of them, you know, you, you wouldn't even know that the, that, that, that there was a partnership. I, I think a lot these days uh, about Ralph Abernathy, who is, yeah, that's that's just a name that very few people in the world could even identify. But he he, he was uh, from the very beginning of Martin Luther King's career as an activist was by his side to the very end. And you know, very often core relationships look like you know they they actually look like adversarial relationships, but they they end up being quite primary. So that's the perspective I brought to the Beatles and, and to Lennon McCartney. And what I found is they really light up and exemplify these themes that I, I found to be true across all times and all situations. And it, it I think it does reveal a, a, a lot of the kind of basic truth of how they created and the, and the great work they made. It shines a light on a lot of the questions that we're still uh, re really holding with a you know a great deal of curiosity. The word collaboration is 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 often used, but what I'm talking about is much 
broader than collaboration. I'm talking about places where two people are affecting each other in a way that makes the work greater. And, and a lot of the project of the book is to look at all the different ways that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, I talk about um, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and the way that they, they were so organized to beat each other, but they ended up creating each other. This, yeah. you know, this phrase advers adversarial collaboration applies that, that also to some extent that that dynamic also to some extent applies to, to Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. Uh, so many of the, so many of, of the core qualities um, show up with, with their relationship. I think I mentioned the, this to you before, but there's a historiographer, her name is Erin Torkelson Weber, and, and she says that um, the two main debates, the two great debates in, in Beatledom are who's the greater genius between Lennon and McCartney right. and, you know, who, who was responsible for the breakup. And, you know, I think that both of those are incorrect, you know, discussions or debates because I don't really think that either of them was responsible or that they really ever broke up. And certainly, you know, based on what you're talking about and what I totally believe is that it's impossible to separate and claim that one is the greater genius because of this. Well, it's the equation that you talk about, the one plus one equals. One plus one equals infinity is the, is oh, yes. the way I describe it. Yeah, yes, two, yes. Two, exactly. two people un unleash something in each other. Uh, and 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 really, I, I think with John and Paul, you could say that they they so decisively interacted with one another that in a way they really created each other. Of course, they are individuals, but they also were so entwined. And we're learning from social science that this this is just the way the human brain actually works. We're so deeply relational that you could look at us as individuals, and that, of course, is valid. But it's also you could look at us like aspen trees that we're ostensibly discrete and separate, but actually so bound up in one another and so affecting one another that we're really like part of the same organism. Right. And that they were. I mean, and, and that's why I think so many of the biographies or the, you know, the group biographies of the Beatles don't make sense when you don't talk about the interconnectedness of them. Yeah. Or, you know, and when they think that the Beatles just broke up in 1970, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to start at the beginning of your, just talk about some of the tenets or some of the themes that you saw um, with great, um, great uh, creative partnerships. Now, first of all, you talk about the dyad or the pair as this primary creative unit. Why is the, the pair so much more powerful um than any other kind of configuration when it comes to creativity yeah there are a couple things while really important things happen in triads and in you know groups of four and more and all of these social units are really very meaningful you know there are collectives and there's scenes my friend austin cleon is a big fan of this term the senius uh, okay. as opposed to genius you know that 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 okay. most meaningful work happens, you know, in culture. Um, but it is also often the case that, you know, two people end up um, pairing up sort of away from a crowd 
and that a lot of the most startling creative advances happens, you know, in that dyadic relationship. And I think it relates to what actually happens in the human mind when we're being most creative. If you, if you really slow down and pay attention to yourself in moments of, of insight or advance, there is a kind of internal conversation. Um, and a, a lot of, um, of what it means to be creative is to try to reduce this noise of, you know, dozens or, you know, or, or maybe more kind of voices and inputs and actually hear, well, Hey, how about it? How about this? Well, that's interesting. Well, what about this? When, when your mind is able to do that, it's, yep. it's, um, you know, that that's when we're being most creative. And I think th there's something going on that I explore in the book between two physical individuals relating and this kind of internal process in the mind. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm not so much, uh, creativity happens in w when you are physically alone, so much creativity happens in a group setting, you know, a band on stage is obviously a, a very important creative unit. So I'm not discounting those things and I'm not saying, Oh my God, unless there are two people sitting across the table from one another, I'm not going to consider it. No, I, I just, I just think right. it's a really useful lens on the creative process. Right. right. You say, you say in your book that pairs naturally arouse engagement uh, and even intensity and I guess that there is some kind of intimacy that allows, you know, we'll talk about that, that something about that unit allows, uh, like the trust and the intimacy allows maybe ideas to grow. Yeah, there's, there, there are also, you know, there, there's a, a great deal of instability can be organic in a pair because um, if you think about dynamics with three or more people, things tend to become um, fixed and hardened people take roles, whereas two people can play off back and forth. You know, if you think of two people, you're in a room together, there's just the two of you and one of yeah. you, you know, gets up to go get some water. Well, now you've moved to solitude and then yeah. there can be a return to kind of intimacy and that has happened totally organically. You haven't had to say, Oh, well, let's take a break. Um, yeah, yeah. and you know, the, the image I, I often thought about is that two, there are two legs to walk and there are three legs for a stool and two yeah. is more fluid and more malleable. What you always find in these really advanced creative relationships is that th there's a relationship between the two individuals, but there's also a relationship between those, between that pair and others. Um, yes. That's yeah. Obviously, the case with uh, with Lennon and McCartney. Right. Well, you call it the dyad, the, a special consecration, um, which is interesting. I mean, you know, married couples are two people, and so there is something special about just the duo. Yep. That there's a level of intimacy. You know, what's interesting is Peter Asher said that he was watching the Beatles. And he said that he noticed that even when they were performing, Lennon and McCartney acted as a duo, as you know, that they were a pair within the performance mm. because harmonized so, so closely. Mm. 
And so I just found that interesting that, you know, Lennon and McCartney as a, as a songwriting partnership uh, is one thing, but they sort of operated like Hmm. that in whatever environment they were Hmm. in, you know? That's cool. Yeah. So just taking from your, your book, you said that you had studied hundreds of creative pairs and you found that they moved through roughly six stages and, you know, they followed many of the same patterns or themes. First one is the meeting, you know, and you talk about the conditions and characteristics that engender this chemistry or electricity Hmm. confluence the idea of becoming truly becoming a pair what that you know what that involves the dialectics which is really about the enmeshed roles and distance the fact that there is an optimal distance or the need for some space in order to give the partnership some ongoing i guess tension or spark Uh, This idea of the infinite game, this idea of the pairs operated at the nexus of competition and cooperation and interruption that often they are driven apart by the same energies that push them forward. Mm, Yeah. And I'd like to just touch on each of these because I think these are really interesting. Again, you know, that what I'm trying to do is explore the dynamics of Lennon and McCartney and just like talk about it within the Beatles world and start to get some of these conversations going. So we're not just stuck in the way that it was told in 1971 and that has remained so since then, you know? So, okay. So the meeting, you're saying that the conditions and characteristics that engender chemistry or electricity is this, and I'm quoting you here, this combo of usual similarities and unusual differences, which is what makes exciting and interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's really fascinating. Yeah, what I found over and over with Lennon McCartney, with uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, with Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, is this, you look at these two individuals who have chemistry, and there are two things happening simultaneous. One is that they're so similar. It's really amazing that any two people would have so much in common. And at the same time, they're so radically different. Of course, anyone you meet, you could find similarities with and you could find some differences. But the, the, the simultaneous kind of extremes of those two conditions, that was what's, uh, that, that's, that, that's what seems to predict uh, the you know, people who are going to really spark each other. Um, a deep, deep rapport alignment and a, you know, uh, just a, a radical difference that you know, creates a situation of challenge uh, and sometimes vexation and also, yeah. um, you know, really gives, a, you know, sets up a, a, a situation where you can really learn a lot and grow a lot in that other person's presence. Well, I think this is really important because, you know, in, in the Beatles narrative, there's constantly two different types of discussions that happened about Lennon and McCartney. They were so different. They were opposites. And then you get people like Linda McCartney, who said that, you know, that John and Paul were more similar than different, you know? And so you hear that like, oh, they were very, very similar. They were, and Paul will say that actually, like, well, we were just, we were actually much more similar than you know. And we were just opposite sides of the same coin, you know, and then you get all these anecdotes about them being quite different. So yeah. it's interesting to know that this is a common thing that both are true. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But both are true. 
in, ex- in extreme degrees. Right. And I think, uh, you know, this is again a quote from your book. You say that uh, there's a, a similarity, a recognition. There is a recognition when they meet, like you've found a lost brother or sister or something like this. Yet, and, and the idea that there's a comfort in the similarity, but it's only one of the ingredients. Yeah. And then the other ingredient has to be that they're quite different, I guess, to add this this dynamism or tension yeah. in, in the relationship, right? Yeah. And and for people who want to know how to cultivate creative exchange, you know, one of my suggestions is we're, we're, we're naturally drawn to people who we have kinship with. There's the, you know, the, the term, the social science term is homophily, uh, that we, we like similarity. And yeah. so- you know, as a rule of thumb, you should actually be looking for the person who is going to challenge you. And emotionally, it's like, get ready for what that feels like, which might be excitement, but it actually might also be vexation. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, two people um, who are going to do really, really meaningful things together really don't like each other when they first meet. Uh, there's a kind of implicit challenge. And if you, if you go back to the church, uh, you know, where Lennon McCartney first had the, it's not the first moment they set eyes on each other, but the first moment they're really aware of each other, there was definitely yeah. a kind of an intensity and a kind of, you know, it, 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 they, they may not have rated that a highly pleasurable moment, but it was definitely one full of, uh, full of energy, full of potential energy, certainly. I think that it aroused them to want to perform and want to, you know, want to outdo one another. You know, later in the book, I get into competition. And I think it's really baked in to that initial spark of chemistry. Um, But then, you know, um, and this moves to the next stage. Chemistry does happen in a flash. There is love at first sight, but it doesn't build a partnership you you really need repeated experience. You need to log the hours. You need to develop trust, and trust only happens when you have repeated experience with with someone. It really does require time, and that, I use the phrase, I use the term confluence to talk about you know how people who do have that chemistry actually go to identifying you know as a as a partnership, and it's another of uh, a place where. Lennon McCartney really illustrate it, um, illustrate this beautifully because it, it really took, they logged a lot of hours, kind of core dynamic. And then there's a moment when they said, look, we're going to do this work together. We're going to share the credit. We're going to share the revenue. And that is a kind of formal moment for a lot of creative pairs that's quite like marriage. You know, it's a kind of a legal, formal declaration of unity. Yeah. I wonder if when they went to Paris, you know, John takes Paul to Paris for his 21st birthday. And that's, you know, after they're back in in Liverpool and then they go and they spend two weeks together and they seem to be very close. I, I, I sometimes wonder if that was the moment that they were committed. Yeah. It was around then certainly. Yeah. Like, but I just wonder if even that trip was meaningful because John chose to take Paul with his, birthday money and nobody else, you know, and, and so that was an experience for them yeah, to explore all together, you know? Yeah, probably so. Um, I mean, the other thing that happens around that time is, uh, 
you know, pairs do identify as a pair and like to each other and to others around them, like make it clear, like this is something special that you, that others can't be a part of. Right. Uh, and that very often you'll see an agreement that they make around what they do and don't disclose. You know, Neil Brennan, who is Dave Chappelle's partner, told me that when they got together and began writing uh, Chappelle's show, that they decided very early on that they weren't going to let they weren't going to tell anyone who did what. And some version of that is is really really common. It, yeah. par paradoxically, that quality, which is so essential to partnership, is also what makes it so hard to actually understand partnership from the outside um and that has ended up being a kind of fuel for the lone genius theory because people just don't know they don't have the raw material to be able to tell the stories about what happened um it was definitely the case with abernathy and king um people just they literally didn't know what what went on between the two of them when they were you know, in their hotel rooms tonight at, at night when they were, uh, when, when they were in a jail cell, uh, they, they didn't talk a lot about it to outsiders and nor, nor did Lennon McCartney. And, you know, until the, the time when they really began to put a lot on the record about who did what was when they were at their moment of greatest conflict. And so that body of material is really problematic as a source. Hang on one second. This is, there's a dog barking over here. Okay. Is that your dog? It is my dog. <laughs> it's okay. Usually my dog, my dogs are like ever present in all of my podcasts. They are, okay. They're really old and they always make a lot of noises. Okay. Well, we can, we can roll on then. <laughs> yeah. Dogs and dogs are welcome. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say though, is that, you know, I know that Lennon and McCartney, it took them a while, but I do think that original spark was there with them because when you actually look at some of the accounts of it, of their original meeting in that first year or so together, a lot of, it comes more from John's friends and the other, the other men, members of the quarry men, but they say that like John dressed up that he was very protective of Paul, that he cared that Paul was teaching him You know, obviously, Paul was very impressed with John, too. Yeah. But I don't want to undermine the love and connection that I believe that happened right from the start. Yeah, it was anyway, it was so profound. I mean, you know, I think if you could bottle what happened in that uh, rec hall at the, at the at the church, it would it, that that is that it is the absolute essence of uh, of chemistry. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think is getting a little bit lost in the story is that their bond, like even Astrid, uh, Stu's girlfriend said that what John and Stu had was entirely different than what yeah. Paul and John had, yeah. which is important that it had this level of um, creative rivalry. Because I think that this idea of, you know, you talk about being seen by somebody that you think is your equal and, you know, that you trust and that you have faith in and that you are competitive with, that is all baked into their relationship, which isn't easy. You know, Pete Shotton says that, that he, John was able to spend time with Ringo, but he was also easy for John. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they, they all were playing these, these essential roles. Um, and, um, 
yeah, it was a, it was a big creative ecosystem, but definitely, you know, those, those two guys were at the heart of it. And there was, I think, um, there, there was such a, a deep, um, I mean, it, it just, it, it, it really, really worked and it worked so well in part, uh, in part because of this conflict. And it was totally makes sense that that conflict would boil over at a time of such instability after Brian Epstein died. And, you know, when they were, you know, kind of moving on to a new phase of their lives, kind of, you know, moving from a period where they were naturally focused on their mates to a period where they would, would be more focused on, you know, their lives as, uh, in, in families. And, um, it, you know, it probably inevitable that there would be some kind of interruption, but I think you and I agree that it's, you know, the, the story of a breakup is, is way too simple a story. Um, when you look at them in the, in the seventies, you know, I see are two people who had worked together so deeply and meaningfully and were really looking for the right circumstance to, to work together again. And it, it was planned to happen just before, um, or to just after, uh, you know, Lennon was assassinated. In other words, they, they had a plan to, to, to get back yeah. and start working in it. And it just, that was the natural arc. I think that, that was, you know, on its way to, to becoming, um, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, the story of, of a, of a breakup just naturally kind of fits this, you know, rom-com, uh, <laughs> you know, narrative structure that we're so drawn to and tuning yourself into creative relationship really requires you to get lo- a lot more subtle. That said, if, if, if you really just naturally think about the people in your own life uh, and, and the relationships that you've observed directly you know, that, that's the best way to tune into these things. It, it's not like it's some otherworldly phenomenon. The people who miss it are the magazine writers and the, and the critics, but ordinary people, I think, have got great access to it just from their own experience. Well, I think that's why there there is such an interest and attraction to Lennon and McCartney, like the, 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 the partnership for all the fact that it isn't explored in books. And maybe that's because of the lone genius myth that, you know, people who tend to write books like to champion one or the other. So I think that, you know, like you said, a lot of people intuit that there's more of a story there because that's how relationships work yeah, in general, totally. you know, very close to somebody. But, but let me just go into some of the interesting aspects of like these really dynamic creative partnerships. There's a few things that you talk about um, in terms of confluence and it requiring a few things, including presence, confidence, and trust, uh, and ultimately faith. Can you just talk about those? Because I think that it's important to think about those in terms of Lennon and McCartney, too. I mean, showing up with presence, you know, logging the hours, like, you know, uh, the, the, it's become a cliche that, you know, you have to log 10,000 hours to be great at anything. There's definitely... Uh, and all the partnerships I saw, like, you know, that there's, it's quite in contrast to this thing that you see as a trope in, in, in film where there's some kind of electric meeting and then it just flashes to two people like at their height. It's actually a lot of mundane work just to be there, to learn the rhythms, to endure the frustration and to kind of develop this 
form of communication that, you know, ends up feeling like maybe it's ESP, but it, it's actually just a really a highly like advanced, like knowing of the other person that is based on experience. Right. Um, and, th- and that, that also allows two people to trust one another. I, I was just in, in a little spat with a very dear friend and they said, you know, c- can we come to trust one another. And I said, I think we can over time, but you know, trust is built on experience. Trust is not something you ju- you don't just decide to trust someone. You, right. you can, you can take a leap of faith kind of into trust, but um, you, what you really trust is you trust that your home is going to be there to receive you at the end of the night. You know, when you walk through the door like that, that it comes from kind of the repetition of, of experience. And then you know, over time, trust like becomes something that is beyond that like concrete physical experience and it it does become something that you know i the the word faith uh best uh best describes well i think all of this is so interesting like the idea of presence of of the idea of like really being sort of naked and and present and letting somebody see you. I think that's what Lennon and McCartney did, you know? Totally. So many people talk about being afraid of John and it seems like Paul was never afraid of John, you know, like he was within weeks, he was like changing up the band, you know? So yeah, he got right in there. Yeah. Yes. Someone like John, who's, you know, has some bluster and a lot of charisma yeah, a lot of people would naturally just sort of fall back and 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 look to defer. And I think that was that was part of the chemistry that that McCartney really took it to him from the beginning. And I suspect that was probably really important to John is to be seen. Yeah, totally. You know, but to be seen by somebody he really respected. Yeah. And so absolutely. So this idea of presence I, I found really compelling in your book that both John and Paul were really open. And, you know, Paul, he's got a wall around him too, probably because of the death of his mother means that he wasn't sharing a whole lot of himself. So the, the idea that they really showed each other, you know, completely or showed themselves completely to each other, yeah. I think is an important idea. Yeah, I think so too. And this idea of faith and this idea that I had one special reader and that was you. Like when they get to this level of partnership, it's like they only really care that that there is one other person they trust, that they know, that they love, sees what they're doing. You know, at the end of the day, if you've got that, you're quite protected. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I would think would have made them so much stronger in the world that like, well, the person I value most, they like this song. So that would have helped. Yeah, definitely. And then you talk about the idea of the convergence in terms of the psychology of we, which I thought was really important too, because that's something that you see with Lennon and McCartney. You know, they talk about our songs and we did this. And there's this this quote from John that I love from 66, where he talks about the fact that, well, only a hundred people could probably understand our music like it was so internalized that their lyrics was coming from the two of them yeah yeah it's profound and yeah again just totally iconic like that's that that is what creative pairs do and it sometimes sets them up for challenge later on because there's a kind of dissolution of of identity certainly in the public mind like a lot of times especially in the early days, people didn't know who, who did what, uh, you know, legally there's joint ownership and, 
you know, it, it is quite like a couple, you know, creating a joint banking account. Like it, there's just, there, there's a lot that, that, uh, that, that you need, you need a lot of trust to build up to that moment. But wow, once you've, once you've done that, um, and it's not just money, it's, you know, your whole creative soul being poured yeah. into these works that you share with another person. It's, it's really profound. And, you know, I think it, it takes so much courage. The working title of the book um, was How to Explode. And the idea was, you know, that, yeah, it's like, this is a way to get big and kind of explode in that sense, like, you know, explode a, 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 into success. But there is also kind of an explosion of the ego uh, that, yes. that is necessary. Um, but I think yep. what, which poses ongoing challenge because we, you know, we, we have, also have to take care of our own ego identity. I mean, that, that is part of having a healthy life is, is to have a, a strong sense of self. Um, for, for two guys who got together so young, you know, they, they were so formed in relation to one another. And so, so when the time came later for them to, to, to really clarify, well, who am I separate from, from this person? Yeah, you know, that that was not that was naturally going to be a kind of messy process. Yeah, yeah, you know, and they both addressed this in the early seventies that they, you know, it's time for them to figure out who they are, and and the fact that they bonded with women so closely speaks to their kind of almost inability to be completely on their own or individuals on their own. I, John, in particular, I think really wanted to merge with somebody. Pete Shotton talks about this with John. He always wanted his name with somebody. Yeah. There's a story that Paul tells, which you talk about in your book when they do ask it together. Paul talks about them looking into each other's eyes all night and saying, I know. And this idea of like, you, you kind of got lost in each other. Uh He seemed to both liked it and disliked it Uh because he he kept saying that he had to go back outside for his health. So I think for him, there may have been maybe more of a need for separation. I, I imagine John Lennon was fairly overwhelming. Yeah, I think so. But John actually talks about, this is one thing that we picked up on is this idea of telepathy is that, you know, he talks about telepathy and the fact that they've got it. And I think he likes the fact that they've got this special, like he said, we don't like to talk. It's too slow. Music and talking through telepathy and music is much better. And I thought that that was interesting, that that was one of the themes that came out in your book, that that's common for for creative pairs. Yeah, I think it feels like telepathy. There there is a kind of physical, concrete explanation. I, I certainly could look at it in a mystical way. Social psychology really can do a lot to explain what happens. And I think that's helpful for people who, you know, who actually want to make work in their lives with other people and, 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 and you want to try to understand that yeah, this is a, this is a thing that can happen. Um, if you, if you attend to the, to the fundamentals. Yeah. In the uh, Get Back Tapes, Paul talks about it. He said, you know, I know you want to have telepathy, but we don't have it. Like, I think at that point, it was difficult because the whole Yoko and Klein and everything was messing with their communications. And so that, I think, was a huge problem for them at that point, that they were used to being able to communicate almost without words. But at that point, Paul didn't know anymore. And he says that out loud. You know, I know you want this, but we don't have it. So I think that that's Interesting. Also, something that's interesting to me is the idea of we, like this idea of this bondedness between them. It seems to break down around 1968. All of a sudden, John starts to be, instead of 
being willing to throw everything into Lennon McCartney. He seems to be much more protective about what his stuff is. And I don't necessarily think it's because he was bored. I think it's there's something that happened between them. There was some split that happened between them that made him defensive. We all need relationship and we all need a sense of self. And I think that their bondedness and their the way that they were identified together in the public mind was naturally overwhelming and you know that that again this is you and i agree that what's looked at as a breakup you know also could be seen as a a really you know difficult but super healthy kind of move to get some space and distance and this is another kind of core theme of great creative pairs that they naturally bind the right distance um the right kind of combination of proximity and kind of traditional intimacy, i.e. like you're in a room together, you're in a space together and, and things that are traditionally thought of as distance, uh, you know, being across town, being in other countries, doing other projects. You know, if you think about, you know, a couple experiences that, that you've had or couples that you admire, like what, what characterizes successful couples is like knowing what works for them. Are we going to, yeah. Be, you know, there are some couples who, who who work together and eat together and exercise together, and that just that level of constant physical proximity works. There are also couples who, um, you know, one of them travels, you know, six months a year, and it just really suits them. And over the course of the Lennon McCartney partnership, you see them, you know, you know, working through these different phases. And it's, it is a, an expression of creative intimacy all the way through, but part of creative intimacy is finding that distance. So when they got off the road in their intensive ways and, you know, one was living, you know, in the kind of Tony suburbs and one was living in the center of London, like that was actually a moment of real creative explosion because they, they got to kind of nurture their own idiosyncrasies and they each had a lot of space to kind of do the thing that was going to feed them. You know, for Paul, Paul was really, really social in that time, was sucking up all kinds of influences in the avant-garde, the art scene in London. And John was also really going deep into his own mind and his own weirdness and his own, you know, yep. exposure to pop culture um, yep. through television and it, you know, but then there was the coming together, there were the writing sessions, and that was a really, really potent moment. And it's a kind of waxing and waning. It's like, you think about it, it's not like, two, it's not a fixed position. It's more like a dance. If you imagine two people dancing, they come to close, they come close, they, they move far apart. Um, and it's, it's the, the rhythm of that interplay that really, you know, makes the dance. Right. This is a difficult one for me because when I was, you know, I I did see this as one of the important components is some form of space and distance is important. And you can see that, especially for Paul, I think it was good to have that, that, you know, ability to be on his own in London. He seems to have been, many people have said he was the most independent of the Beatles in terms of just sort of carving out his own 
thing. But I think you're right in terms of like John being in the suburbs is always positioned as a bad thing, but it probably wasn't. He came up with incredible music at that time when he was going deep into LSD and spending time and reading. And those were all very creatively fertile things. Yeah. But here's something that we've noticed. John mentions a number of times that their partnership fell apart when they weren't living together. He says this like a number of times in the 70s that, well, it, it ended when we stopped living together. And then, you know, when I look at it, they stopped, they stopped touring together in 66. But then, you know, then they're apparently John was at Paul's place all the time in 1967 when they're yeah. writing Pepper. You know, he practically lives there. And then John spearheads them all moving to Greece to live together. And then they do Magical Mystery Tour together. And then they go to India together. And again, John mentions that, you know, the end, he could see the end when Paul and and Ringo left India. I think that maybe, like you're saying, that the creative distance was quite good for them. But I wonder if it triggered John's anxiety and and abandonment issues when he didn't have his family, like his little Beatles Mm. family close to him. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, I, I suspect that's an issue with him because there's just, you see him really trying to get them together and to live together in some form. Like that was the John dream was, was going to the Greek islands. And then he, he proposed a, a town in England and then he proposed right. an island in Ireland. Like he really wanted them to all be yeah. in a community, you know, but it's unfortunate that they didn't, weren't able to see that actually this is good for us to have just a little bit of space because the stuff that they did when they got back together was fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. And you you talk about the ability to keep surprising each other too, which I think that, you know, that this distance enabled them to do as well. Yeah, right? totally. And I think, you know, Lennon was an extreme character. He was extreme in his wish for, you know, immersion with others. And yes. he was also extreme in his need, you know, for differentiation. And that is, that, that's, that's a, a paradox. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but all, <laughs> all great characters are paradoxical. And, yeah. you know, that, that's a reason why, you know, biographers who tend to be very unilateral thinkers are often inadequate to the task of really grappling with great creative people. Cause it's, it's just shot through with paradox. Uh, right. One can feel sorry for Paul when you think of, you know, I, I see John as hugely needy, but also in, in multiple ways. Like I don't know how anybody would be able to actually meet all of those needs. And then he he seems to be so hurt when people don't, mm, you know. Totally, you know. Go back to his his upbringing. It's 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 you know it's easy to see how some of those dynamics emerge and to have a lot of tenderness for him and a lot of appreciation for all that he did that was you know that was um, constructive and creative. There was so much hurt and so much so much need. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John is so sweet in some ways, and then so. So difficult in others, you know, but again, that's what makes him fascinating. Fascinating. You talk about the infinite game, nexus of competition and cooperation. Yeah, the infinite game is a is a, it's, it's not my phrase. I borrow it from a, a very influential book of the same title, and the argument of the book is that there are finite games and infinite games, and that finite games are defined by rules and boundedness and time, and the whole point is to declare a clear winner you know sports are finite games um, but that the real 
passion and wonder of life comes from what, what this author calls an infinite game. And the whole thing about an infinite game is that there are two people, they're kind of at each other and playing at each other and often competing with each other, but the rules are shifting, it's not bounded, and the whole point of it is to keep playing. Yes, See that I think that that is so wonderful because that is what I feel like the one thing that Lennon and McCartney could not stand is for one of them to stop playing. Like that's what I think that they always needed is yeah. to know that their person was going to respond and was still engaged. Yeah, they and 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 they did keep playing, and it's totally crucial to understanding the relationship they they had to, to know that. When they were ostensibly broken up, they continued to play with one another, but from a distance. They continued to try to challenge the other, to try to respond to the other. You know, they were digging at each other and their lyrics. Like that itself is a kind of relationship. The opposite of of love is is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And they were Absolutely. they were never indifferent to one another. But that's unfortunately where the story went. You know, I think in in John's desire to rewrite the story, to elevate the Lennon-Ono partnership, you know, he told the story that he was creatively bored in 68. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of, he probably didn't even tell that exact story, but that's how it's been spun, that he had lost interest in the Beatles and the Lennon-McCartney partnership. And that that always disappointed me. It was like, oh, this thing that seems so amazing just died. And I, I don't even know why it died. And then, you know, now that I've obviously spent years digging into it, it's like, man, that never died. In fact, that it, it even remained intense until John died. And and as you say in the book, that it continues to live on with Paul, you know? Yeah, yeah but it, yeah, it, it, it's also just natural for things to wax and wane and to, you know, have, have moments of moments of boredom are, are also just part of the creative journey. We get bored with our own work. We get bored with our partners. You just need to take the really long view to understand things. I mean, you can't, you can't take that thousand feet in the air view. Like when you're in the midst of living your life or when you're, when you're commenting, you know, from any fixed vantage point, I don't know. I think obviously the the gold evidence when you're studying a creative person is what they said and thought, but you also have to understand like, when are they saying it? What, what, what's the context in which they're saying it? Right. It does. Right. It, what's their, what's their agenda? What's the agenda? You know, what's, what's the, the hurt? What's the, yeah, what's the need? What's the wound? What's the perspective? Yeah. Well, I think the wound is a good one too, actually, because, you know, especially with John, Paul's more measured in terms of his responses, although I do think he responds sometimes from a wounded place, but certainly John does, you know, and certainly he did in the breakup period where unfortunately he said some things that are taken as like gospel now, even though he rejected them later on. Yeah. Well, um, he was fiery know, and tempestuous and, you know, he contradicted himself sometimes in the same sentence. Uh, and, and that's, that's uh, also really characteristic of a creative mind to be able to, you know, what F Scott Fitzgerald said is that, you know, the test of a first great mind is the ability to hold two opposing concepts without cracking up. Yeah. Um, and you know that that's what we look to art and great rhetoric and you know architecture that we look for opposites to be melded 
um, in part because it's so hard for, you know, for us to do that in ordinary life. We have to, you know, choose one or the other, often one or the other extreme. Right. And, uh, Actually, yeah. somebody who knew, knew Paul well said that he had that ability too. So, you know, that, that is... It's, that's characteristic of all great creative minds. One of the most influential books for me um, was, you know, the, uh, by the psychologist uh, uh, Csikszentmihalyi, who, who people, his, his, he created the idea of flow. And he wrote a book about the flow of creativity. He studied highly, highly adept, highly productive, creative people and extremely accomplished people. And his prime, his primary finding is that, is that great creative minds are characterized by a series of um, uh, being able to occupy both sides of of kind of a series of contradictions of contradictory positions. So, for instance, really, really um, creative people are able to be highly attuned to what other people think of them, and also like deeply indifferent. Um, they're able to kind of move to like this is what I think, and you know, middle finger to all of you to like, no, I actually really need to take a lot of input now. And, and, and their ability to occupy those extremes, that actually is what defines a creative person. Um, and I think that's certainly true of Lennon McCartney and became, of each of them, you know, they're, they're highly, <laughs> their characters are, are really complex because there's so much duality in each one of them. And then when it comes together, it's like, oh my God, there's so much complexity to, to, to manage. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, again, it's, it is, it's something if, if people just look into their own heart and their own experience, they, I think they can, they can identify with it. So much of discovering the truth is, is just putting down the biography and, and just like paying attention to what you know, yeah, I mean, I, the problem is, I think that people have to let go of a lot of the ideas that we've got in our heads now. That's that's the problem, <laughs> you know, with Lennon McCartney. Is there's there's things when I was looking at the breakup that I had to say a million times to myself to like because I kept reading things with what I had understood to be the story that really wasn't, you know. Yeah. So one of the things that you say in in your book or you talk about that I found really interesting is the overlap between eroticism and creativity or more maybe it's the eroticism that is part of creativity or the in, in creativity there is an eroticism. Anyways, this this combination of these two things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean eros is associated with sexuality and with sexual function. But it's so much more. It's so much more in human life to be aroused, um, to be heightened in a in a way that that affects yourself, you know, your 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 physical body. And it, uh, it there's also there's so many forms of love and attachment. And you know, I think we reduce that to you know only one kind of of experience, and we we make kind of the sex act like the center of all. Uh, intimate and erotic experience, and that's that's definitely not the case. Um, the the, the uh, that that quality of you know, in its in its primal sense of of eros is 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 really uh, 
fundamental and uh, and exciting and and also you know destabilizing like to to really be drawn to someone you know in a, in a physical way it's like oh my god what do I do with this and a lot of times you know people who are you know really governed by fear like the first thing you do when you have that experience is to is to turn away. And I think what you saw with Lennon McCartney is that they really, they certainly, you know, for a very long time, they kept turning toward it. Um, and they kept, you know, they stayed in the fray and, uh, you know, so much, so much great work, so much great work uh, resulted. Yeah. Yeah. There was so much gray area. Like this is the problem again with talking about them is that, you know, we used a couple of other um, musicians that were songwriters that were talking about the fact that when you're, he's writing with his partner, that there is, there is an element of romanticism, of eroticism that is, you know, that is coming from the creative process, but it gets confusing because you're so into it and then you finish it and then, then you separate again. But it's just like, we're talking about people that are having an experience that is quite hard to understand for, I think, the everyday person that's not involved in that. But we do have all elements of that in our life. You, you spoke with Esther Perel, who um, <laughs> I've actually written to because I would love to talk to her about Lennon McCartney, um, because I think it's really interesting to actually to talk to therapists about creative partnerships. But um, you said that uh, you asked Esther Perel, who'd written and lectured widely on eroticism, whether sharp distinctions could be drawn between physical and creative desire, she smiled and said, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, talking to uh, w- one of the partnerships that I, I spent a lot of time with that they're, they're not extremely well known. I, I didn't end up actually naming them in the, in the book, but they were, they were a married couple and they, they still are a married couple and they worked a lot together writing television and, one of the, the husband of, the, of this, this couple said that he, he was never more aroused than when he saw his wife, you know, really doing her best work. And that, that actually um, resonates with, with Esther has asked people all over the world when they're most aroused by their romantic partner and it's it's the same answer when they see them kind of at a distance or nearby kind of embodying their kind of highest potential uh like that's that's the the strongest moment of arousal and um yeah i think there's a real interplay um you know i ended up using the phrase uh creative intimacy to describe what I was interested in in the book, and you know, I think we we need a whole vocabulary to translate terms that are mostly associated with friendship and with romance to creative production, because uh, it, it is it's so it's so fundamental to creativity. Um, and yeah, I think our language is really a pretty emaciated because so much of the language is is uh, you know formed uh, by this lone genius uh, fixation yeah yeah it's so sad that we're just just so immature and 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 just reflect such 
impoverished thinking that like the only thing that matters is like romantic love. It's like, yeah, romantic love is really, really meaningful, but like the realm of erotic and intimate experience is so vast. Yes. And even within a romantic couple, you know, I think if, if you were to really think broadly and expansively and creatively about what Eros is and can be, that would, that would enrich romance much, much more than looking at everything through the lens of romance. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, a really silly position, but, but listen, there's very little attention to the intensity, the, the, the depth, the range, the importance of creative relationships. So, you know, where is this stuff going to get talked about? It, it doesn't get talked yeah. about in, um, you know, corporate, you know, consultant language, which is yep. totally, you know, the, their whole thing is to eliminate relationships from the systems of, you know, of production. Cause it all, you know, they, they, they don't, they don't want to have to talk about emotions and they don't want to have to talk about, right. you know, the, the, they're trying to create these kind of uniform systems that relationships really disrupt in 2020, if what you can do can be reduced to a set of rules, then it can be done by a computer, and you're either you're you're on your way to obsolescence. The things that can't be reduced <laughs> to a set of rules are these yeah. deeply human experiences, and the core to human life is the way we manage the movement between solitude and relationship, and. So the idea that being professional is to kind of excise these emotions is just, it's so counterproductive. And the first people to tell you that would be the people who are performing at the top of any field. The Absolutely. first person to tell you about the importance of relationships in finance would be Warren Buffett, you know, yep. or, you know, Steve Jobs is weird and, power hungry as he was like his genius was in identifying the partners. And he did this sequentially through his life, you know, with whom he could, uh, you know, make, uh, insanely great things. And yeah, it's, you know, there's heartbreak and there's excitement and there's, you know, it's, it's going to be super, super emotional. And, and that, the, the the culture of denying that is it is unfortunately it that is the dominant culture but it's just totally wrong-headed well you know what and we see this in this is my personal struggle in talking about Lennon and McCartney there is such a division between the old school um we we call them jean jackets who are like the 1970s like you know Rolling Stone writers that are still around and talking about the Beatles and they're very fixed. You know, they've bought into the fact that Paul and John were never friends. And then you've got this other crowd that see them as a romantic couple. And then there's very little middle. We're trying to operate in this middle ground saying they had a really important, deep relationship that was really important to their creativity. And it's worth talking about. But both sides, I mean, you know, it's really difficult because of that. Well, it makes what you're doing all the more important. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do think it is because like, you know what? Their relationship was really important. Yeah. It's like it, it, even having to deny it though, kind of puts you in this like really, I think problematic frame. It's like, does the thing that matters most, like whether they, was there, was there sexual contact at some point? If there was, it was, you know, compared to the thousands of hours they logged on stage in the studio, exchanging ideas and that quite manifestly, you know, produced this, this, this body of work that is so fundamental to who we are as a civilization. I mean, it's like you that's walk exactly into a room if you're you know are you gonna like if you're an architecture critic and you walk into a room or like are you gonna be obsessing about like you know the wiring that's like in the earth are you gonna just yeah. like look at look at look at what's right in front of you look at the light look at the look right. at the look at the materials look at the yeah. shapes but that's exactly right. And thank you for saying that because that's what, that's what we concluded is like, I don't know, maybe, maybe there was something between them, but that's really like, that's not the issue. The issue was there was a love and a chemistry underneath that's the important part of the relationship. I think if there ever was anything physical, it was secondary, you know, just, it's not the issue. So, you know, and I don't personally know anything about it. So I'm just going to exclude that. You don't but, know. I don't know. Probably no one will ever know. And, you know, getting some humility about, you know, about what we can know and can't know is, 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 is a really important starting place. Yeah. And, and just getting comfortable with that and appreciating that that's, that's part of, you know, that's part of the grandeur of life. There was a quote, I don't know if you've ever seen it, from John in 1972. He was talking to Sandra Chevy in an interview. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says that maybe if my partner and I could have had a relationship, that would have satisfied it. He doesn't mention Paul. He mentions between him and his partner. That's interesting. Well, yeah. And the... the you know, I, I forget exactly what the data is, but there, there was a median age in England at the time for marriage. I think it's 26 or 27 or something. And if you, if you, you know, these these guys are are young teenagers when they met, and they're in their late teens and early 20s when they explode. And it's just a natural time in life to be mostly oriented around uh, your your buddies. Yep. And, um, you know, it's tr John had a girlfriend and she got pregnant and they, they got married, but it, that was never the primary driving, you know, relationship in his life was, it was clearly with Paul and the band mm -hmm. and they were moving into another phase of their life as they got into their mid and late twenties. And it's, it's really natural and it is always disruptive for intense creative pairs when other people, when the context around them begins to shift. So that's how I read. Uh, that's the association I have to, the, to that quote that, yeah, it's like that there was a lot of instability bound up in the other characters 
And when, when right. Paul got together with Linda, if you trace in, as I do in the book and really, as you really like drill down, like when did they meet and then what happened and then what happened and then what happened? It, it really helps, uh, you understand the kind of the, the instability and the disruption and the competition and the, this, you know, period that they moved in that eventually led to what is, you know, erroneously considered a breakup. Um, but they were going to have to go through it. You know, if you take the big picture, they actually did, they, they did go through it and they did get through it and they were moving to a place where they were ready to work again. You know, um, you know, you look at Crosby and, you know, David Crosby and Graham Nash, who, you know, have had the great fortune of, you know, a long life and neither one of them died tragically young. And there are many decades of waxing and waning and, you know, touring together and doing solo work and, you know, the, the chemistry and the sense of bondedness has remained. And, you know, I think if you had to, you know, if you had to, predict if there there hadn't been a tragic ending of, of the life of one of these two, you know, wondrous partners. Um, that's the life that they were set up for and that they both, you know, they both really clearly wanted. So that's yes. the, the, the real, you know, that's the real, the real breakup is, you know, comes with the assassination. And yep. um, even then though, when you're close with someone, when someone has so decisively affected you and influenced you, the relationship carries on in your mind. And I think that's definitely true for, for Paul as he relates to John imaginatively. Yep. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's how I see take John's comment too. You know, again, <laughs> there's people in the fandom that run with it, but it's like, to me, he's just saying, I think he's saying that because he he says that um, you know maybe if we could have been a couple that that would satisfy things, but we're not. He says we're not homosexual. That that's what he says. Well, right. I mean, and, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the other thing is that if you, it, I, I'm not fixated on sexual preference, and I think it would be a huge mistake to do it. But obviously, it, it is a factor in our in a big factor in the way we're oriented. It, if you if you look closely. John Lennon and the way that he used language and the way that he talked about what turned him on. And it, this is not a, a, an unambiguously heterosexual man it, that, that there's, I, I don't want to label him, but yeah. it, there's definitely a big, thick, fascinating picture. And it would take, you know, a, a great literary writer with, with, with a lot of, with a lot of skills to really, try to tell a story about his deepest erotic life. Um, but it, it's, you know, I can say for sure that it was really complex. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It really comes out in the early seventies. Like this is something that we noticed when we looked at his interviews from the early seventies. He's very confused. He talks about, well, you know, we were just four fags in a band and oh, yeah. he's all I, I missed that. That's really interesting. You know what does he say that it's more convenient or it's um, right? Once he reconciled that it was a woman, you know, it's just like right. John, what are we 
talking about and why did nobody pick up on how weird this all is yeah and you know? and what you know what kind of life might he have had led it if he had not grown up in such a repressive he was a voracious curious you know he he you know he and he 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 really he defied form so it just it it, it makes sense yeah. that he would he would defy conventional sexual type Right. And so that this idea that to that comment that he made, I sort of thought the problem was other people coming between them and jealousies and possessiveness and all those things that they would have had to have dealt with, like you said, at that period when they're in some ways splitting and having to find a new equilibrium when they have other partners. Because as you said, even though John was married and Paul was with Jane, I think that they, their commitment to each other was still stronger. Yeah. Then when Linda comes on the scene and Paul seems to have had a, a strong attraction, like there was something between them right from the start, yeah. which I think. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's really evident. And you can follow it beat by beat. And then what happened when they went back to England and, you know, what happened with, you know, I, I read the, you know, the, the, the romances of those period as a call and response. It, it's not to say yeah. that what was, what was happening between John and Yoko was incidental or between Paul and Linda, but they were definitely like, they were super, what was happening in their romantic sexual lives, you know, with these new partners was, was super uh, involved with each other. And uh, <laughs> it definitely was, but yeah, I mean, I, I it's, it's, this is, it's all, it's all part of this, great drama that we you know need to take in as a tableau it's like again just to think about you know complex and 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 wonderful just think about like if anybody were to think about like the last like really good like hbo drama that they loved like and then you try to apply the questions that like you know are typically applied to like historical characters it's like it's just it's silly it's like the, the the pleasure is is in the subtlety and the nuance and the complexity and the way it kind of defies like these really rigid categories right and and, well, and every moment is related to every other moment and absolutely there's misunderstanding and there's you know contradiction and that's just that's the way that's the way that <laughs> that life works yeah. And I like your idea of like, that's what we were trying to do with the breakup series was actually look at what came before this, this action, because that that's how people do act. They're reacting to different things in their lives constantly, you know, yeah. and, and the idea of it looking, looking at it as a tableau. I mean, John knew Yoko for a long time, but until Paul really connects with Linda, he doesn't really seal the deal with yeah. Yoko. Right. And then when, once John gets together with Yoko, Paul dumps the girlfriend or, you know, sets up a breakup with the girlfriend that he's probably not meant to be with to, for the one that he has the stronger relationship yep. with. And then there's, there's issues between both of them. And then they get married within eight days of each other. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> Lewis well, has asked. And it's so, it's so mundane in the sense. It's like, yeah, of course that's what these guys are going to do. And of course they're like, you know, they're, super fixated on the other and it's all well, it's, and it's 
you know, you go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it, it's so true though. We even looked at, looked at the language of like the day that John announced he had a, wanted a divorce is all they could remember. They're both talking about the color of each other's face. And it's like, oh my God, they're so fixated on each other. They don't even remember who else was in the room, you know? Yeah. And so, so don't tell me that these guys didn't care about each other. But people like Lewison, he was asked, like, do you think that their weddings had anything to do with each other? And he said, well, no, John, John Lennon never commented on it. And it's like, well, of course he didn't comment on it. But can we just look at the behaviors? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. I just think it's super, super counterintuitive. So you don't really believe that the breakup that they went through in 1969-70 was a true breakup? You know, we've talked about it. I mean, how, how would you characterize it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I had to reckon with what happens at the end for partnerships, like I, I, I decided to use this word interruption, and that that that's the word I would use. There was an interruption. It was a really, you know, ended up being a really significant one, but it it was so significant um, in the end because of factors that that were outside of the kind of mutual interest of Lennon and McCartney. First, there was an incredibly complex legal problem that they, that they had about the corporation and the ownership and, and, and all this stuff. And the, the lawyers were, you know, were, were deep in the weeds for years. And so that, that really compounded things in the late sixties and early seventies. John's relationship to Yoko, who, who was a, certainly was and still is a, a huge force also really compounded things um, in, into the seventies. And then of course, John's, you know, John's death, you know, when, when he had, he had, he had roused from a, a period of dormancy, introspection, you know, maybe depression, uh, maybe intense addiction in the, in the mid and late seventies into you know, back into a period of creative production. And he made it really clear, like he was coming back to life, back to recording. And that part of that project was to, was to work with Paul and the band. And if the question is like, did they still feel a deep sense of attachment to one another? The answer is definitely yes. And was there a huge like interest in the other and a sense of the other as like a really kind of key creative force in their lives? The answer is definitely yes. Was there competition? Was there anger? You know, was there even some bitterness? Yeah, that and that's also part of human relationship. So no, I wouldn't I wouldn't use the term breakup. I think it's a I think it's really shoddy storytelling. Um I think I think right. I think it it you know, and it you know, people use it because they like to just put a period at the end of that sentence and move on. But I think it's, <laughs> it's so much more interesting when you open yourself up to the question of like, well, what was really going on and what followed and what was the arc that they, that they traveled on. Um, and, it, but unfortunately it, it also makes the story much, much sadder. It's like, if you could persuade yourself that, yeah, they broke up in 69 and of course they were never going to work together again, then, you know, knowing that in the, you know, 50 years that have passed, there are no more Beatles music for the world. It, it's, I think, easier to digest if you just think, oh, yeah, it's, you know, they broke up. 
was over, the dream was over. If you really open yourself up to what actually happened, it, it, it makes that loss like much more palpable. Well, yes and no. Like, and, and, and to your point, like, so I started this breakup series and I'm continuing to work on it because you realize that they never broke up. But, you know, you said, you, this is a quote from your book that you say, the reason we can't assign a date to when John and Paul definitively split is that it never definitively happened. Yeah. And that's what I'm finding is that, you know, I keep setting like, well, this is probably when I can end the story, but you can't. Because, like, by the time that things settled down in 1972, they start to re-spark again. And, you know, 73, 74, they're back to connecting. And so it is the infinite game with them. And you know what? Ultimately, I find that story less sad, even though there's more tragedy to that because they wanted to get back together and they were moving that way. And we were robbed of it. They were robbed of it. That is very tragic. But the fact that that their creative spark never died, I think, is a much nicer story for me anyways. You know, to, to think that, I think it's the truth, but it's also a better story. I like to think that that energy remained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, you're... You're, you're emphasizing the bright side, which I'm, I'm glad for. And there, there is so much warmth and life in this. And, you know, that one of the, the, the simple uh, but profound pleasures all through this process was just really listening deeply to the music, putting on good headphones and just really being with it and feeling how much is there and, and, and being, you know, it, it's, yeah. um, you know, it, you know, I I was born in 1971. So I, you know, when I grew up with this catalog, you know, which had been completed um, uh, when I was when I was born, but it's also, you know, what it's 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 there for uh, new discovery all the time, and um, you know that spark that was at the core of it is it, it is a spark toward life toward you know i mean creativity is the you know it's the it's the discovery of what it is to be alive um and um yeah these these two guys really really embodied it and and articulate it and i think you know show us something way beyond you know their own experience. I think they, they show us a possibility that is, um, that we can all have access to, um, you know, in in our own, in our own way. Well, that's very beautiful. That's a lovely way to end. Um, you know, and the interesting thing is, is that, you know, if you look at their, their lyrics and I mean, we're reading into things, but there's certain things like in John's songs, he drops Paul's you know, song titles, lyrics, the word wings. <laughs> like, yeah. I think there are shouts throughout constantly, you know, throughout the 70s between the two of them. Just there is a continued dialogue that almost has been ignored. And, you know, people, I guess, if that makes them feel better, that then fine, whatever. They don't have to see it. But I love the fact that there is, like you said, there is this interplay that continued between them, this this creative spark that yeah. you said totally resulted in all of us even in the most bitter moment like how can you sleep like there's a lot of delight you know i think and a lot of 
And if you think about um, who in your world are you able to really be openly angry at? Yeah. It's the people that you're closest to. Uh, Oh, yeah. A child can't be openly angry, you know, if a child is openly angry at their parent, like that means something really, there's a really healthy culture. And I think that it's, you know, to say that anger or even bitterness is like, to kind of narrate that as a detail of disenchantment. It's like when you're really disenchanted with someone, when you're really letting someone go, you stop thinking about them. You yep. stop referring uh-huh. to them. You stop when you're like when you're writing a song that like comes from a like a you know, this like deeply energetically angry place, like you're still in the you're still in the thick of it. <laughs> It's true. That's what I don't get. Like, that's why I'm always confused. Like, why didn't these journalists get it? You don't write a song with that much emotion, which people always say, like, that was the sexiest song on the album. It's like, yeah, because that one had all the emotion. Why they just thought that meant he didn't like him. Like, yeah, he was angry with him. But to your point, I mean, the scary thing would be if he just didn't care. Yeah. Which is probably why Paul was able to um, shrug it off. You know, it's oh. like, well, at least he's still thinking about yeah, me. Well, sh- shrug it off and take it as fuel for his own rejoinders. I mean, he was he was involved in the same project. He was like, okay, well, so now we're in a phase where we're going to assemble different kinds of bands and different studios. And we're going to, you know, we're going to trade lines in a different way. They traded yep. Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, and now they're going to trade songs in a you know, in a, in a different context. And he was, I think, you know, I'm sure there was all manner of feeling, but he was also like clearly, you know, involved in his own creative project and, you know, (laughs) did a lot of great stuff. I mean, I, I love John solo stuff. I love Paul solo stuff too. I think they really articulated, you know, in, in, in a, in a really beautiful way, kind of, you know, their hearts and their, and, you know, I think, I don't know, I think it's a, uh, it's a trope in one, in uh, this, uh, what's the Ethan Hawke movie um, that follows a boy across his whole childhood and a moment when his father gives a son, he's, you know, he says, this is, this is the great last Beatles album is like all the best solo stuff. And if you think about it, if you think about George's stuff and John's stuff and Paul's stuff, like all really speaking to each other. And it is a, it, 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 it is another manifestation of, you know, of the band in in a, in a, in a way. Oh yeah. I mean, actually Paul has said that John told him that jealous guy was written about him too. Is that right? yeah, in 1985, he, it's interesting because he said that to huh. Playgirl Magazine. He said, John told me that he had written the song Jealous Guy about me. And it's it doesn't get traction. Like, there's certain stories that people don't want to know. Yeah, that's, t- that's so beautiful, though. It's, it's one of my favorite songs. It's also been covered so beautifully. Yes. It's so yes. tender and open and loving and introspective and yeah that's that's uh i love hearing that 
How important is that to the story, though? But this is what drives me crazy, though, is to me that's really important to the Lennon-McCartney story that, yes, John wrote How Do You Sleep About Him, but he also wrote, you know, Jealous Guy about him and told him. You know, so that's what Paul knows. Paul knows both sides, that I deal with John, and this is when he's angry. And then I get this other John who writes beautiful songs to me, too. You know, so that's part of their experience. And it bugs me that our culture only likes angry John at Paul, and it frustrates yeah. me. Yeah. Well, listen, I, you know, it's you're, you're doing important work in response, trying to, trying to hold a more capacious you know, human vision, you know, two really big and wonderful, complex human people, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's important. I, 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 uh, being part of it. Thanks, Joshua. I appreciate it. Concludes my interview with Joshua Wolfshank. Now, one final thing, I want to acknowledge that since publishing this interview over two years ago, a couple of articles about Shank have come out that suggest he may not have uh, shown the best judgment in certain situations. You can Google it. Shank is apparently uh, neurodivergent, which can make him a bit socially awkward. And I'm not condoning any behavior that makes anyone uncomfortable. And so I just want to say that, but I don't have all the information on this situation. And I don't think this issue undermines the quality or integrity of his work or of this interview. So I've chosen to replay it because I still think there is tremendous value and insight in his work and in this interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving the podcast a shout out in social media or give it a review or a rating. It helps other people find the podcast. And if you're really enjoying the podcast or you'd like to support it, please consider joining the podcast Patreon group, which is patreon.com forward slash one sweet dream. I'd love to have you there and sincerely appreciate all support. And there is exclusive content that goes up there. Uh, I will be releasing an episode in the next few days. So thank you everybody for listening. I will be back with yet another revisited episode on Friday. So watch out for that. Please subscribe if you haven't done so yet. And uh, thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone. Lots of love. Bye for now.